0: don't have enough time to sit down and read all the best Bitcoin articles, well, let us read them for you. This is a Crypto Economy Quick Read. What is up, crew? Welcome back to the podcast and happy Bitcoin Conception Day. Um, 10 years ago today, October 31st, um, the Bitcoin white paper was released. I'm sure, you know, everybody's seen it on Twitter and, uh, takes a shot every year on Halloween. That's my, this is my favorite thing about Halloween is that is Bitcoin white paper day. Um, but, uh, it's for, for those people calling it Bitcoin's birthday, that is not what it is. Bitcoin did not go live today. The concept of Bitcoin was laid out and announced to the world in the white paper. That is Bitcoin conception day. Bitcoin's birthday is January 3rd, 2009, when the Genesis block went live and Bitcoin started breathing. I have very strong feelings about this, and you are wrong if you think that is not right. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> okay uh so uh if you listened to yesterday's episode we hit shelling out the origin of the origins of money uh with nick zabo uh and we got maybe around a fourth of the way through it and i'm going to just jump right back into that today uh and uh if you have not listened to it obviously you're going to be completely lost um i'll give you a little bit of intro here to where we were so basically we've been hitting a point in the um uh, selfish gene, um, broader selection theory um, outside of sexual selection and kin selection, just kind of the overarching uh, of Adam Smith's theory and talking about the uh, prisoner's dilemma uh, and how uh, you usually don't see cooperation in uh, nature because of this, that the, there's always the possibility for one party to cheat and it gain at the expense of the sucker, which is far easier. Uh, and so, but sometimes animals uh, uh, co- do cooperate, um, but it's hardly any of them even managed to reach paleolithic humans level of cooperation. Um, most of them are kin, but sometimes they do. Uh, it's usually a tit for tat strategy where they cooperate until one party cheats and then the cheated party defects um, to motivate them to continue to cooperate uh, and then we were starting getting into some highly constrained situations with uh, parasites becoming symbiotes um, and possibly over a very extended period of time if the benefit from the symbiotic relationship is large enough that they, they could even become a single organism. Uh, and then the last is there is much more than cooperation going on here. There is also exploitation. They occur simultaneously simultaneously. The situation is analogous to an institution humans would develop, Tribute, which we will analyze below. And that's where we are, so without further ado, let's jump into part two of Nick Zabo's amazing piece, Shelling Out, The Origins of Money. Some very special instances occur that do not involve Parasite and Host sharing the same body and evolving into symbiotes. Rather, they involve non-kin animals and highly constrained territory. A prominent example Dawkins describes are cleaner fish. These fish swim in and out of the mouths of their hosts, eating the bacteria there, benefiting the host fish. The host fish could cheat. It could wait for the cleaner to finish its job, then eat it. But they don't. Since they are both mobile, they are both potentially free to leave the relationship. However, the cleaner fish have evolved a very strong sense of individual territoriality and have stripes and dances that are difficult to spoof, much like a difficult-to-forge brand logo. So the host fish know where to go to get cleaned, and they know that if they cheat, they will have to start over again with a new, distrustful cleaner fish. The entrance costs, and thus the exit costs of the relationship, are high so that it works out Without cheating besides the cleaner fish are tiny so the benefit of eating them is not large compared to the benefit of a small number of or even one cleaning one of the most pertinent examples is the vampire bat as their name suggests they suck the blood of prey mammals the interesting thing is that on a good night they bring back a surplus on a bad night nothing their dark business is highly unpredictable As a result, the lucky or skilled bats often share blood with the less lucky or skilled bats in their cave. They vomit up the blood, and the grateful recipient eats it. The vast majority of these recipients are kin. Out of 110 such regurgitations witnessed by the strong-stomached biologist G.S. Wilkinson, 77 were cases of mothers feeding their children, and most of the other cases also involved genetic kin. There were, however, a small number that could not be explained by kin altruism. To demonstrate these were cases of reciprocal altruism, Wilkinson combined the populations of bats from two different groups. Bats, with very rare exception, only fed old friends from their original group. Such cooperation requires building a long-term relationship where partners interact often, recognize each other, and keep track of each other's behavior. The bat cave helps constrain the bats into long-term relationships where such bonds can form. We will see that some humans, too, choose highly risky and discontinuous prey items and shared the resulting surpluses with non-kin. Indeed, they accomplished this to a far greater extent than the vampire bat. How they did so is the main subject of our essay. Dawkins suggests, quote, "...money is a formal token of delayed reciprocal altruism, end quote, but then pursues this fascinating idea no further. We will. Among small human groups, public reputation can supersede retaliation by a single individual to motivate cooperation in delayed reciprocation. However, reputational beliefs can suffer from two major kinds of errors, errors about which person did what and errors in appraising the value or damages caused by that act. The need to remember faces and favors is a major cognitive hurdle, but one that most humans find relatively easy to overcome. Recognizing faces is easy, but remembering that a favor took place when such memory needs to be recalled can be harder. Remembering the specifics about a favor that gave it a certain value to the favored is harder still. Avoiding disputes and misunderstandings can be improbable or prohibitively difficult. The appraisal or value measurement problem is very broad. For humans, it comes into play in any system of exchange, reciprocation of favors, barter, money, credit, employment, or purchase in a market. It is important in extortion, taxation, tribute, and the setting of judicial penalties. It is even important in reciprocal altruism in animals. Consider monkeys exchanging favors, say pieces of fruit for back scratches. Mutual grooming can remove ticks and fleas that an individual can't see or reach. But just how much grooming versus how many pieces of fruit constitutes a reciprocation that both sides will consider to be fair, and in other words, not a defection. Is 20 minutes of back scratching worth one piece of fruit or two? And how big a piece? Even the simple case of trading blood for blood is more complicated than it seems. Just how do the bats estimate the value of blood they have received? Do they estimate the value of a favor by weight, by bulk, by taste, by its ability to satiate hunger, or other variables? Just the same, measurement complications arise even in the simple monkey exchange of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. For the vast majority of potential exchanges, the measurement problem is intractable for animals. Even more than the easier problem of remembering faces and matching them to favors, the ability of both parties to agree with sufficient accuracy on an estimate of the value of a favor in the first place is probably the main barrier to reciprocal altruism among animals. Just the stone toolkit of even early Paleolithic man that has survived for us to find was in some ways too complicated for brains of our size. Keeping track of favors involving them, who manufactured what quality of tool for whom, and therefore who owed whom what, and so on, would have been too difficult outside the boundaries of the clan. Add on to that, quite likely, a large variety of organic objects, ephemeral services such as grooming and so on that have not survived. After even a small fraction of these goods had been transferred and services performed, our brains, as inflated as they are, could not possibly keep track of who owed what to whom. Today we often write these things down, but Paleolithic man had no writing. If cooperation occurred between clans and even tribes, as the archaeological record indicates in fact occurred, the problem gets far worse still, since hunter-gatherer tribes were usually highly antagonistic and mutually distrustful. If clams can be money, furs can be money, gold can be money, and so on, if money is not just coins or notes issued by a government under legal tender laws, but rather can be wide variety of objects, then just what is money anyway? And why did humans, often living on the brink of starvation, spend so much time making and enjoying these necklaces when they could have been doing more hunting and gathering? 19th century economist Carl Menger first described how money evolves naturally and inevitably from a sufficient volume of commodity barter. In modern economic terms, the story is similar to Menger's. Barter requires a coincidence of interests. Alice grows some pecans and wants some apples. Bob grows some apples and wants some pecans. They just happen to have their orchards near each other and Alice just happens to trust Bob enough to wait between pecan harvest time and apple harvest time. Assuming all these conditions are met, barter works pretty well. But if Alice was growing oranges, even if Bob wanted oranges as well as pecans, they'd be out of luck. Oranges and apples don't both grow well in the same climate. If Alice and Bob didn't trust each other and couldn't find a third party to be a middleman or enforce a contract, they'd also be out of luck. Further complications could arise. Alice and Bob can't fully articulate a promise to sell pecans or apples in the future because among other possibilities, Alice could keep the best pecans to herself and Bob the best apples, giving the other the dregs. Comparing the qualities as well as the quantities of two different kinds of goods is all the more difficult when the state of one of the goods is only a memory. Furthermore, neither can anticipate events such as a bad harvest. These complications greatly add to the problem of Alice and Bob deciding whether separated reciprocal altruism has truly been reciprocal. These kinds of complications increase the greater the time interval and uncertainty between the original transaction and the reciprocation. A related problem is that, as engineers would say, barter doesn't scale. Barter works well at small volumes, but becomes increasingly costly at large volumes until it becomes too costly to be worth the effort. If there are N goods and services to be traded, a barter market requires N squared prices. Five products would require 25 prices, which is not too bad. But 500 products would require 250,000 prices, which is far beyond what is practical for one person to keep track of. With money, there are only in prices. 500 products, 500 prices. Money for this purpose can work either as a medium of exchange or simply as a standard of value, as long as the number of money prices themselves do not grow too large to memorize or change too often. The latter problem, along with an implicit insurance contract, along with the lack of a competitive market, may explain why prices were often set by long-evolved custom rather than proximate negotiation. Barter requires, in other words, coincidences of supply or skills preferences, time, and low transaction costs. Its cost increases far faster than the growth in the number of goods traded. Barter certainly works much better than no trade at all and has been widely practiced, but it is quite limited compared to trade with money. Primitive money existed long before large-scale trade networks. Money had an even earlier and more important use money greatly improved the workings of even small barter networks by greatly reducing the need for credit. Simultaneous coincidence of preference was far rarer than coincidences across long spans of time. With money, Alice could gather for Bob during the ripening of the blueberries this month and Bob hunt for Alice during the migration of the mammoth herds six months later without either having to keep track of who owed who or trust the other's memory or honesty. A mother's much greater investment in child rearing could be secured by gifts of unforgeable valuables. Money converts the division of labor problem from a prisoner's dilemma into a simple swap. The proto-money used by many hunter-gatherer tribes looks very different from modern money, now serves a different role in our modern culture, and had a function probably limited to small trade networks and other local institutions discussed below. I will thus call such money collectibles instead of money proper. The terms used in the anthropological literature for such objects are usually either money, defined more broadly than just government printed notes and coins, but more narrowly than we will use collectible in this essay, or the vague valuable which sometimes refers to items that are not collectibles in the sense of this essay. Reasons for choosing the term collectible over other possible names for proto-money will become apparent. Collectibles had very specific attributes. They were not merely symbolic. While the concrete objects and attributes valued as collectible could vary between cultures, they were far from arbitrary. The primary and ultimate evolutionary function of collectibles was as a medium for storing and transferring wealth. Some kinds of collectibles, such as wampum, could be quite functional as money as we moderns know it, where the economic and social conditions encouraged trade. I will occasionally use the terms proto-money and primitive money interchangeably with collectible when discussing pre-coinage media of wealth transfer. Gains from wealth transfers People, clans, or tribes trade voluntarily because both sides believe they gain something. Their beliefs about the value may change after the trade, for example as they gain experience with the good or service. Their beliefs at the time of the trade, although to some degree inaccurate as to the value, are still usually correct as to the existence of gain, especially in early intertribal trade, Restricted to high-value items, there was strong incentive for each party to get their beliefs right. Thus, trade almost always did benefit both parties. Trade created value as much as the physical act of making something. Because individuals, clans, and tribes... All vary in their preferences, vary in their ability to satisfy these preferences, and vary in the beliefs that they have about these skills and preferences and the objects that are consequent of them. There are always gains to be made from trade. Whether the cost of making these trades, transaction costs, are low enough to make the trades worthwhile is another matter. In our civilization, far more trades are possible than were through most of human history. Nevertheless, As we shall see, some kinds of trades were worth more than the transaction costs for some cultures, probably back to the beginning of Homo sapiens sapiens. Voluntary spot trades are not the only kinds of transactions that benefit from lower transaction costs. This is the key to understanding the origin and evolution of money. Family heirlooms could be used as collateral to remove the credit risk from delayed exchanges. The ability of a victorious tribe to extract tribute from the vanquished was of great benefit to the victor. The victor's ability to collect tribute benefited from some of the same kind of transaction cost techniques as did trade. So did the plaintiff in assessment of damages for offenses against custom or law and kin groups arranging a marriage. Kin also benefited from timely and peaceful gifts of wealth by inheritance. The major human life events that modern cultures segregate from the world of trade benefited no less than trade, and sometimes more so from techniques that lowered transaction costs. None of these techniques was more effective, important, or early than primitive money. Collectibles. When Homo sapiens sapiens displaced Homo sapiens neanderthalus, population explosions followed. Evidence from the takeover in Europe, 40,000 to 35,000 BP, indicates that Homo sapiens sapiens increased the carrying capacity of its environment by a factor of 10 over Homo sapiens neanderthalis. In other words, the population density increased tenfold. Not only that, the newcomers had spare time to create the world's first art, such as the wonderful cave paintings, a wide variety of well-crafted figurines, and, of course, the wonderful pendants and necklaces of seashells, teeth, and eggshell. These objects were not useless decorations. Newly effective wealth transfers, made possible by collectibles, as well as other probable advance of the era, language, created new cultural institutions that quite likely played the leading role in the increase of carrying capacity. The newcomers... Homo sapiens sapiens had the same size brain, weaker bones, and smaller muscles than the Neanderthals. Their hunting tools were more sophisticated, but in 35,000 BP, they were basically the same tools. They were probably not even twice as effective, much less 10 times more effective. The biggest difference may have been wealth transfers made more effective or even possible by collectibles. Homo sapiens sapiens took pleasure from collecting shells, making jewelry out of them, showing them off, and trading them. Homo sapiens neanderthalis did not. The same dynamic would have been at work tens of thousands of years earlier on the Serengeti when Homo sapiens sapiens first appeared in that dynamic maelstrom of human evolution, Africa. We shall describe how collectibles lowered transaction costs in each kind of wealth transfer in the voluntary free gift of inheritance, in voluntary mutual trade or marriage, and in the involuntary transfers of legal judgments and tribute. All these kinds of value transfer occurred in many cultures of human prehistory, probably from the beginning of Homo sapiens sapiens. The gains to be made by one or both parties from these major life event transfers of wealth were so great that they occurred despite high transaction costs. Compared to modern money, primitive money had a very low velocity. It might be transferred only a handful of times in an average individual's lifetime. Nevertheless, a durable collectible, what today we would call an heirloom, could persist for many generations and added substantial value at each transfer, often making the transfer even possible at all. Tribes, therefore, often spent large amounts of time on the seemingly frivolous tasks of manufacturing and exploring for the raw materials of jewelry and other collectibles. Image The Kula Ring The Kula trading network of pre-colonial Melanesia. The Kula valuables doubled as high-power money and mnemonic for stories and gossip. Many of the goods traded, mostly agricultural products, were available in different seasons and so could not be traded in kind. Kula Collectibles solved this double-coincidence problem as an unforgeably costly wearable for security and circulated, literally, money. Necklaces circulated clockwise and arm shells counterclockwise in a very regular pattern. By solving the double-coincidence problem, an arm shell or necklace would prove more valuable than its cost after only a few trades, but could circulate for decades. Gossip and stories about prior owners of the collectibles further provided information about upstream credit and liquidity. In other Neolithic cultures, collectibles, usually shells, circulated in a less regular pattern but had similar purposes and attributes. For any institution in which wealth transfer is an important component, we will ask the following questions. 1. What coincidence in time between the event and the supply for the transferred good and demand for the transferred good was necessary? How unlikely or how high a barrier to the wealth transfer did the improbability of coincidence represent? And two, would the wealth transfers formed a closed loop of collectibles just based on that institution Or were other wealth transfer institutions necessary to complete circulation cycles? Taking the actual flow graph of monetary circulation seriously is critical to understanding the emergence of money. General circulation among a wide variety of trades did not and would not exist for most of human prehistory. Without completed and repeated loops, collectibles would not circulate and would become worthless. A collectible to be worth making, had to add value in enough transactions to amortize its costs. We shall first examine the kind of transfer most familiar and economically important to us today, trade, starvation insurance. All right, and we will pick back up here for tomorrow. Um, So we're gonna start into starvation insurance, and then kin altruism beyond the grave, and the family trade tomorrow. And then on Friday we will hit the last sections, the spoils of war, uh, disputes and remedies, attributes of collectibles, and the conclusion. Um, I hope you guys are enjoying this one. I really, really love this piece and it's just packed full of awesome stuff. Uh, If you have not yet, don't forget to follow Nick Zabo. You'd be a fool not to at least be reading what he has, uh, his amazing work, um, both like during the cypherpunk days and then just for Bitcoin and Bitgold, just an amazing resource for tons and tons of uh, thought and theory about all of these concepts and uh, cryptography and smart contracts and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, Just a huge, huge resource. Check out his blog at unenumerated.blogspot.com. And you can find a ton of his work as well at the nakamotoinstitute.org where I'm reading uh, his shelling out piece off of. Um, and uh, we will go ahead and close this one here. I don't want to talk too long. Um, uh, one of my favorite, uh, the idea of reciprocal altruism and the fact that um, money itself, its creation could very well have been what truly separated Homo sapiens sapiens from Homo neanderthalus. And the fact that the density of providing for a society or a culture, um, a group of people, uh, density was 10 times as much as it was uh, prior to this introduction of collectibles is just, just unbelievably fascinating to realize that such an efficiency gain can come just from being able to trade across time in large value transfers that we we are allowed to lean on each other as a society for things that we cannot achieve or to specialize where um, one group can do one thing and another can do some other uh, task or growing or um, service or whatnot and then we can reach a uh, we can reach a trade of those things so that any one individual in the society only needs to specialize in that which is in high demand, highest demand at the time. So it's just fascinating to get at what the heart of money's utility is. It is something that when used jointly, when used as a standard among a group of people, it's a unbelievable efficiency gain because it limits distrust and um, disputes across time and uh, in value to simple swaps handled with an uh, uh, independent pricing mechanism so that you don't have to remember any one favor or the details of any one situation, that it can be sorted out through the organizational power of trade and uh, individual, individual trades through a monetary medium. So it's just just a wonderfully fascinating concept. Um, And I truly think like in my studies through all of this and uh, economics, it was really these key points of money that just took me down the rabbit hole well before even Bitcoin existed. I was just beginning to realize that money truly is the source of society. Um, Without it, there is none. It is just politics and dispute and antagonism. We cannot cooperate on the scale that society is, that civilization is without an intermedium, uh, intermediate tool to get across all of our barriers, whether they be race or belief or culture or language, any of those things, money is the unifying medium that creates cooperation, that forces cooperation among people who may otherwise hate each other. Um, and it leads us to depend on each other for trade and our success and our happiness, like our standard of living it it creates cooperation by necessity and it's just fascinating that's just a fascinating tool that it can bridge the gap it can get over that nasty political hate that we have for each other and politics is reintroducing it it's it's where we destroy money in order to fight over the stupid crap that we you know we deem important in our own subjective ways and to decide that the other people that these other people who we trade with should either give us a partial refund because oh of the color of their skin or because they live in uh, taller houses or you know whatever stupid excuse we have to be jealous or hateful or resentful of them. Um, so it's just the way that we attack each other to get around the cooperation that we are required to do in the market. So uh, that's just a little rant on that and I just love this concept. It's just an utterly fascinating thing to me. And uh, uh, we will continue here uh, tomorrow on part three of shelling out the origins of money. Don't forget to follow me. I am at The Crypto Economy on Twitter, Mastodon and Medium. I'm at uh, at bitcoinhackers.org on um, (laughs) on Mastodon. Uh, You can find that uh, link straight to that in my Twitter profile if you've not followed me up there. Don't forget you can support the show if you would like to, if you're finding value in this. Um, There's a huge, huge help and another big thank you to the people who have donated recently. It really, really feels good to come back up in the morning and, you know, check the address with my cup of coffee and see that, you know, people are appreciating this and, uh, you know, send me that $2 to get me that coffee in the morning. Um, So thank you guys uh, who have done that. It really means a lot. Um, And, uh, uh, also, you can obviously support the show just by retweeting it, getting it out there, sharing it with people, subscribing, leaving iTunes feedback. You know, leave me a good review. Um, and uh, uh, and if you're interested in um, reading some of the books that I'm reading right now, uh, I am getting really close to the end now of The Drunkard's Walk, and it's honestly getting better as I go. I am um, really loving this book. I might actually, I think I, I think I mentioned this that I kind of want to put it on the uh, you got to read this if you're into crypto uh, lists that I'm trying to build right now. Um, so, uh, definitely one to uh, tackle. And if you want to get it through my affiliate link on cryptoeconomy.life, uh, and you'll support the show without costing you anything. And I also obviously have the masterpiece, Mastering Bitcoin by Andreas Antonopoulos, up there as well. And of course, I've got a Trezor affiliate link. So, if you're looking for your hardware wallet, that's where you go. Um, And all of those uh, options will let you support the show without actually any cost directly to you. Um, All right, guys. uh, Thank you so much. We're closing this one. I will catch you all back here tomorrow with another episode of the Crypto Economy Podcast. Take it easy, guys.